It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. That's the incredible voice of our guest today, who has the sophisticated sound of a mature, old soul jazz singer, yet it is coming from a young woman who is only 17 years old and a rising star. Her debut album, which by the way was recorded at the age of 16, is called Love Something, Anaïs Reno sings Ellington and Strayhorn. Anaïs, thank you for joining us here today on All That's Jazz. Thank you for having me. It's truly a pleasure. And first off, let me congratulate you on a splendid and rather impressive album. Thank you. That's very sweet. Well, let me begin by focusing a little bit on a quote that's in your liner notes for the album. And it says, I quote, One thing I know is that the music of Ellington and Strayhorn understands me. This is why I want to honor it, and this is why maybe one day I will understand myself. Explain that. First of all, thank you for, of all the lines in the liner notes, picking the one that means the most to me. I know that I didn't tell you about that, but that was very perceptive of you to pick that. If I'm to explain that quote, I think I should also give a little bit of context to the liner notes in general. I think everybody especially in their teenage years, can go through a period of time in which they feel either misunderstood or that they don't understand themselves or that they are too complicated because there is a line between human complexity and just being too much, too complicated. And I have definitely felt that way at times, mostly because I've imposed that feeling and that overthinking process of communicating with myself internally on myself and what really helped me over time was jazz in general but specifically the music of Ellington and Strayhorn because the things that I felt I had isolated myself with were the things that I heard in their music it was the fact that it was so complex and so human the harmonies and melodies and lyrics and chord progressions all weave together to create this very human tapestry of emotion and complex characters. And I could hear the sadness, the melancholy, but also the joy and 
the understanding of life and maturity within it. And that resonated so deeply within me that it helped me understand myself more as a person. And it still does, even after I've recorded this album and spent so many hours with this music. You know, that was really a, a wonderful selection for you to focus in on this, especially as you described with the complexity of Ellington and Strayhorn's music. And it's not an easy piece of music for any artist, whether it's vocalist or instrumentalist, to undertake and to deliver the goods, so to speak, of, of what they meant by that music. And you've done that. Thank you. I wouldn't go as far to say that I have performed it the way that they would have meant it to. I can't actually ever know that for sure, but I know that I can at least say safely that I recorded it in the way that it touched me. And that's something that I can only thank them endlessly for. And I'll never be able to do that in person, of course, but this is my way of thanking them. Well, you honored and respected the music by your interpretation of it, and you made it your own. And that's what's important for any artist to do. You're still 17, correct? You haven't turned yeah. 18 yet. Yeah. So you started thinking about this album, if I understand correctly, at the age of 15 and formulating the idea or the concept of putting one together as a leader? Yeah, there were conversations among my mom and a couple artists and producers of just developing an opinion on whether I should start to record an album. And at first there was no definite idea as to what the album would be tributing or what kind of sound it would have. But then I started to put together a set list for a show that I did at Birdland at the end of 2019, right before the pandemic started. And it was of the music of Ellington and Strayhorn. And quickly, as we were formulating this set list, I was about to turn 16. My mom said, what if this is the music on your album? And for some reason, I rejected the idea at first because I had some weird notion in my mind that it was strange to have your first album be the celebration of specific composers. I thought that it had to just be standards that I liked. But over time, I realized why she said that, because the set list was the one that I had been most proud of that I'd ever sung so far. And it felt cohesive and it felt so me. That's really what sold me on my mom's idea. Because what else are you going to do for your debut album to make your first grand statement into the world than do something that sounds and feels like you? Well, and it certainly uh, is an amazing album, uh, top Thank to you. bottom. There, there's no question about it. And I'm, I'm sure Thank that you're you. quite proud of it. In, in, in a way, it was kind of surprising in starting to look at some of your background and your long history of 17 years on this planet. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I thought you had a, a devotion to the music of Frank Sinatra, and then here you are paying tribute to Ellington and Strayhorn. What happened to Frank? Frank never leaves me. I have a shrine that I accidentally developed of his work and his photos in the corner of my bedroom. And I'm about to go to college and I plan to bring at least half of it, if I can, to my dorm room because he follows me everywhere. Trust me, 
He has not left, even though at the moment I'm focusing on Ellington and Strayhorn. He is always there. And, you know, he's saying a few of these songs so beautifully. And I talk about him in almost every set list I perform these days. So he is just one of those godlike figures that I adore. And he sang some of Ellington and Strayhorn's material so wonderfully. So it all intertwines in my mind. Well, let me ask you before we jump into the album and, and discover and explore some of that. I'm excited. Let's talk about your lineage. You come from two parents that come from the classical world of music. Your father being an opera singer, your mother a professional violinist. Uh, although she did play classical music, she also dealt in other genres of music as well. Mm -hmm. Were you kind of like the uh, the rebel in the family and uh, you you resisted getting involved in classical music? Neither of my parents ever strongly imposed classical music on me. I do know that my dad has a bit of a dream that I'll do opera one day and I'm starting to get into it a little bit because I'm starting to take um, classical voice lessons from a teacher at the college I'm about to start at, which is SUNY Purchase in New York. But there was never much pushback on the decision to go into jazz because it happened quite naturally when my voice teacher influenced me to go in that direction when I was eight. And my mom always loved jazz. And my dad, over time, started to understand why both of us loved it so much because of its versatility because of how freeing it is because of how sacred it is within music in general but especially american music so i wouldn't say i was the rebel i'd say i definitely introduced it into the household a little bit more but there was always a certain appreciation and respect for it within my family members but early on, your mother, I believe it was, discovered you singing a song from Aladdin and it kicked off from there. Did she just find that you were delivering an impressive interpretation of this song? What was that all about? Both of my parents heard me singing A Whole New World. It's probably the most famous song from Aladdin. I was singing that around the apartment when I was five and both of my parents looked at each other and thought, oh, there's something there. I think they heard it less so interpretive, interpretation-wise, more so vocally. And they kept that in mind. And then I was singing this Etta James tune, Something's Got a Hold on Me, because I had heard it in a dance class. I think I was six or seven, and we were singing it around Central Park. And I think that's when some of the interpretive impression was made on them even though i didn't understand what was happening i just enjoyed singing it and then i started to get more serious i enrolled in voice lessons when i was seven and then when i was eight my voice teacher who i had just recently started with got me into at last by Etta james which brought me into older music more soulful music and then it quickly became standards from there so did you start not only appreciating jazz music itself but did that kick off a little bit of to start doing some research on the music itself or how did it continue a little bit i remember the first time i heard frank sinatra my grandmother was hearing me 
sing some of these older standards such as smile and you make me feel so young which i did not understand the irony of me singing that at the time but she played me frank sinatra and ella fitzgerald singing can't we be friends and i remember asking who's that and she told me well he's dead now but he's one of the greatest singers of all time and one of the most famous singers of all time and so i started to look into who was singing the songs that I was learning and who wrote them. And early on, I learned that Nat King Cole did not sing, did not write Smile. It was Charlie Chaplin. And I started to understand that there's a certain sacred quality of actually knowing where the songs came from. And I've tried to honor that ever since. So when you were developing your voice with the tutelage or the help of uh, a voice teacher or numerous voice teachers, when did it start to develop and, and reach the richness and maturity that you have now, even at just 17? I can't say exactly when my voice became what it was because it's hard for me to tell because when you're the one singing, all you know is you're working on singing and then people react to it differently over time. But my dad has always helped me with my singing as well, being a former opera singer. Not only does he have the technical ear for it, but he also has this incredible baritone sound and you can hear it when he speaks. He still sings around the house. And so that largely influenced me and working with my voice teacher, Sarah Tolar, at the 92nd Street Y growing up helped me a lot with interpretation and tone and working on different placements in my voice. So all of that mixed together, I suppose, developed my craft, as I might say, over the years. And here I am now, still working on it. I have a long ways to go, and I'm looking forward to going down that journey. After the voice lessons and the years started to pass, you, you started getting involved with things like open mic nights. I believe you went to Birdland and did some mm -hmm. of that and then started making some inroads and introductions to not only artists, but you met up with a man by the name of Gianni Valenti, who uh, I guess is instrumental in a lot of ways in your career so far. Very much so. I went to cast party at Birdland when I was 12 for the first time. And ever since then, I've sung several times at Cast Party, and I've had a couple of gigs at Birdland, and I've become, both my mom and I have become quite close with Johnny. And not only is he a part of my career now, and somebody who I see at Birdland all the time, which has become such an important place in my life, personally and musically, but he's also a great friend. You know, we go out to lunch, we go out to dinner, and we hang out, we talk about music, we talk about life, we talk about the pandemic whenever it's applicable. Of course, it, that was not an applicable topic a couple years ago, now it is. But he and Birdland and the whole family there really have been so important to me, especially through those times in which I mentioned earlier, I did not feel understood within myself and within my school which was never anybody else's fault. I had a habit of isolating myself and somehow Birdland managed to break me out of that. The music and the people there and the family there managed to help me personally and artistically so much over these last several years. It is not only an amazing, iconic venue for jazz, but it's the real deal. And 
as are the people that are associated with Birdland. Every yeah. one of them are, are just, uh, they're, they're incredible people in, in so many ways. And I could see how they could take you under their wing and nurture and move you forward in this. And I understand Gianni also helped you assemble some of the uh, personnel for your album in terms of who you play with. And boy, you couldn't have started out better than to have somebody like Emmett Cohen in your corner. Yeah, Gianni got us in touch with Emmett and his trio. And I had met Emmett a couple times prior. I I knew him vaguely and I had gone to a few of his gigs, all of which were incredible, of course, but I'd never closely worked with him. And so that was an incredible opportunity to be able to have in any setting, let alone on my first album. So we went in the studio, we rehearsed Emmett, Russell and Kyle, and they brought in T-Von Petticott on sax. And then we had my mom on a couple tunes playing violin. It was a really wonderful experience and very informing. And I learned a lot from it. And I'm so thankful for that for many reasons. Well, you uh, got a great support mechanism uh, in place mm -hmm. for you uh, right away. And, and that's good. And, and you can tell. I'm very I, lucky. I, I have the suspicion that they respected you as as an adult and as the real deal. You you just weren't some sort of fly-by-night, one-time, one-hit wonder kind of thing. Someone saw in you a lot of future in this music called jazz. Thank you. What's nice to say is that nobody in that world has treated me like a kid ever, even when I was 12. And I, you could still consider me a kid, but even when I was undoubtedly not even a teenager, nobody ever spoke to me like I knew less, even though of course I did, or like I had less experience, which I had less experience, but they treated me like their own and like somebody who, as they were, just wanted to learn and wanted to improve and gain more experience and knowledge. And that is something that has helped me so much over these years. So how long did it take to actually put the album together from studio to mixing and then release uh, just this past April? We went in the studio for the first time a year ago, actually. It was August 10th and 11th to record with the band. And then about a month, month and a half later, we decided to change a couple of the songs. We took out one that never made it to the album, which was I'm Beginning to See the Light by Ellington. And we added a couple. Couple days before that next studio session, David Haydu, who wrote the iconic book, Lush Life, about Billy Strayhorn, he gave me a cassette tape that had the only recording of a very obscure Strayhorn tune called Still in Love on it. my hairdo got some new shoes got rid of that chair you used to sit in and snooze but alas and alack i'm right back where i started from still in love with you i got some new fur went on a spree looked into the future yes and what did i see there you 
stood as of old Big and bold staring back at me Still in love with you I thought the bright city lights Would blot out your eyes or at least I was very fortunate to get to put that on the album and then we added Lucky So-and-So which was not previously recorded either. So that recording experience spanned longer than we expected it to. When I did some punch-ins, I worked on making it exactly how I wanted to because it was my first recording experience and I wanted it to be perfect. Both my mom and I are very obsessive perfectionists. I was surprised. There was even a point in the studio where I kept redoing certain things or wanting to interpret something differently. And at some point, my mom said, calm down, Anais. The classical violinist mother told me to calm down. I thought that was very funny. <laughs> but after that, we worked on mixing and mastering. And Tyler McDermott and Alan Silverman, who did those jobs respectively, were so good and cooperative and patient and they did such a beautiful job so i'd say that all of that probably finished in january february ish at the time we were also getting together the cover and the liner notes and then we barely made the deadline but we did it to get it together by april 16th when it released and here it is i ain't got the change of a nickel Ain't got no bounce, no bounce in my shoes. I ain't got no fancy to tickle. I ain't got nothing. I ain't got nothing. I ain't got nothing. Oh, I ain't got nothing. But the blues Ain't got the change of a nickel Ain't got no bounce in my shoes Ain't got no fancy to tickle Yay! Yeah, indeed. I just think overall it's a very impressive album. Uh, you have impressive personnel and musicians on it. It's produced, I believe, in uh, a co-produced manner with your mother and Gianni Valenti as well. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't have started out any better, I would think. Even the <laughs> album itself, the uh, the artistic design uh, was done by, uh, let's see, Luann Grafeo. Mm -hmm. And, and the photos were shot by Sophie Elgort. That was a really fun day in the studio. And it's interesting to see how you were portrayed in the photos and how you present yourself either in terms of branding or with respect to your reputation. Uh, it, it's hard not to take you seriously. And as you said earlier, no one's taking you as a kid in this. You are coming off as a mature sophisticated woman in, in this release. Thank you. <laughs> and I, I think it's quite evident because even when I put it on for the first time in the house before I uh, even put it on the air, I let my wife listen to it and she was, oh my God, how old is this woman? I said, 17. I said, no, come on, seriously, how old is she? Uh, and it's, it's, it's that I'm sure you're proud of that kind of an impact that it makes. Of course, it's hard 
for me to wrap my mind around that because to me, I just sound like me. But it's very nice to hear that and to hear that it comes across well. So thank you for saying that. Well, I would think you're getting those kinds of reviews and feedback in some of the uh, reviews and comments that the media and press are, are making about this release. Yeah, the media has been very nice and complimentary. And again, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around all of it. It definitely is not all processed, but just to have any good feedback from anybody who has something interesting to say is something I'm very grateful for because I know that not everybody gets that privilege and I've had great support the whole way and I have a great team backing me and that's something that I know not everybody has. When we started out the program today, I played a little snippet of you doing the intro to Caravan and I think that establishes you right then and there uh, between the range, the lushness in your voice and the maturity. It, it just, it, it's, it's a wow factor uh, that comes off right away. Uh, and Thank then it goes from there. So of the 12 uh, tracks that are on this release, is there one or two that are really ones that you're most proud of or, or really in your or on your radar scope is like wow this is what i wanted and why well, did it i think the one that means the most to me sentimentally and artistically is definitely lush life because not only is it led into from the upper manhattan medical group intro that Emmett plays so beautifully, but it is also one that is a very stigmatized piece of music, and I understand why, but it was definitely a statement and a risk to put it on the album. The album's kind of a risk in general, but that song in particular meant a lot to me, and I really wanted to get it right. I used to visit all the very gay places those come what may places Where one relaxes on the axis of the wheel of life To get the feel of life From jazz and cocktails The guys I knew at sad and sullen gray faces with distant gay traces that used to be there you could see where they'd been washed away by too many through the day twelve o'clock tales I liked the poetry of putting a song from the end of Strayhorn's life alongside a song from the beginning of his life, because he was barely older than I am when he wrote that. And it is also because of that fact that he was so young that I felt comfortable putting it on an album and singing it at all, because there will always be people who are entitled to their own opinion, of course, who will tell you that you can't sing certain songs if you're a certain age, and that one in particular is so sacred that it's especially protected. 
And I understand that. But then I also think to myself, Strayhorn was 19 when he wrote that song, when he finished that song. So he started it even earlier. And when you're young, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. And there's a lot of emotional complexity that you are learning about yourself and the world. And I think that no matter what age you are, if you can sing it honestly, you should do it. As long as you're not hurting anybody, as long as you're singing something that's appropriate for whatever stance you have in life, I think you should go after it. So Lush Life meant a lot to me, and I am happy with how it turned out. Well, it's a great tune, and there's so many on there that just come to mind as real standouts, uh, and, and you made them your own, as I said earlier. You did you. Uh, take the A-Train, Still in Love, I Ain't Got Nothing But the Blues. But then there's one tune. Let me ask you about this, because I think it sums you up right now at this stage in your life. I'm just a lucky so-and-so. <laughs> That's such a great tune. I've had such a love-hate relationship with that song because I sang it a couple years ago and all of a sudden I started hating it. Not musically, but I hated singing it, which was funny because it's not that I sang it so many times. It's not that there was any real reason to despise it with the fervor that I did, but that's what happened. And then we were trying to figure out songs for the album and it kept coming up as a suggestion and I kept rejecting it. And then eventually I thought, okay, let's switch up the arrangement, switch up the instrumentation, switch up the feel even before I did it in 12-8 feel. As I walk down the street, Seems everyone I meet gives me a friendly hello. I guess I'm just a lucky so and so. The birds in every tree are all so neighborly, they sing. Wherever I go, I guess I'm just I'm just a lucky, lucky so-and-so Once we did that, I had so much fun recording it and now it's one of my favorite tracks on the album. Well, good. I'm glad I picked that one out because yeah. of how it resonates with you. And I think it kind of sums you up in a way right now, as far as these early stages of your career. You have your mother on this on two of the tracks. How did that happen? Was she sitting in the living room one night and, and said, Anais, uh, you've got to put me on your album. My mom is very gentle and respectful about that. She never makes me feel pressured into including her on anything, but we've actually been working together for quite some time since I believe the first formal solo gig I ever did when I was 13, she has played a song here or there with me. And she played on that one Birdland show where I tributed Ellington and Strayhorn before the pandemic started. And since the album was already based on that show, figured why not keep her on it because she plays so beautifully before 
she played on Caravan and Mood Indigo, I believe. No, it was Caravan and It's Kind of Lonesome Out Tonight. And then we mm-hmm. changed it to Caravan and Mood Indigo. And that's not true. It's Mood Indigo and It's Kind of Lonesome Out Tonight. We took out Caravan. But I'm so happy with how she played on it. She's so sensitive, so lyrical with it. She knows the lyrics, which is something that's very sacred with instrumentalists to actually know which words you are playing the melodies to. So I think you can hear that on the album. Well, I think you can too. And I think you summed that up very well. And I'm impressed uh, with the recording itself. And then let me ask you, at at this stage in your life, uh, do you feel like you've missed out on some of your childhood, so to speak? Even your website, uh, it stands right out at the beginning with your name. And, you know, right as you open up the website, it says, Ana Is Reno. Here is a woman singer who stands out from the rest. A woman singer. You know, most people that are 17 don't think of themselves being a woman at that point. I don't either. Trust me. That's a quote, which I am very thankful to have because it means that somebody's taking me seriously. And like I said earlier, I'm so thankful for that. But I definitely don't see myself as a woman because in reality, I am 17. I am still emotionally messy as most teenagers are. And to be quite transparent with you and answer your question, I have felt out, felt that I've missed out on certain things because, you know, I've never been the friend who could just talk on the phone whenever somebody needed me. I've never been the friend who could stay late at the gathering i always had to leave early but i don't want to complain about that because in reality it got me here and it's going to continue to get me wherever i want to go and nothing has been a fundamental enough loss to where i don't have the connections and the people that i need because my friends are phenomenal and i've gotten to learn about socializing and people i'm sure to almost the same extent than any other teenager could so I don't have any real losses to be sad about. Mm-hmm. Like you said, in reference to the tune, I am very lucky. Well, and you're fortunate also in that at 17, you have a destiny in front of you. You mm-hmm. have a purpose and a goal, it seems. I assume you're going to continue this line of work. Yeah, I am going to study jazz in college and I want to pursue this when I grow up. But as for the destiny, term i definitely don't think i have a destiny and to be quite honest i'm not even sure that i know what my dream is i know that i want to sing i know that i want to perform but i don't know that there is a path laid out for me actually because in reality none of it's going to happen if i just drop everything so i have to make whatever's happening now last and build upon it and that's obviously not easy to do but that's why you work and that's why you keep the people who are supportive of you close to you. Well, and I think you've been also looking at the possibility of maybe broadening your horizons because when you were at LaGuardia School for the Performing Arts, uh, as a high school student, you were a major in drama. Uh, Was that part of the, the plan maybe for the future? When I first applied for the drama program, it was actually mainly so that I could assist my performing and singing skills because 
it has changed the way that I've interpreted lyrics so much because really songs are just monologues set to music and work on Shakespeare has changed the way I think about the way that composers will choose certain words in terms of their consonants and vowels because so much of Shakespeare is centered around consonants and vowels. That's just one example. But in terms of acting, yes, I am interested in it because I really enjoyed it and I loved it. And the last year and a half of school was, of course, on Zoom. So we had to film a lot of things and that was very enjoyable, even though it was quite different. But I think really what I want, whether it's acting or singing or even writing, which I've recently become interested in, what I really want at the end of the day is to perform and be on a stage because as I've talked about before, feeling understood and understanding myself is very important to me. And that's where that happens the most profoundly in my experience. So right now, that's what your expectation is in hoping that this is the perception that people have of you at 17 thus far in your career is someone who uh, brings a sophistication and a maturity to the business. I would hope so. (laughs) Yeah. Any other projects uh, on the horizon for you just yet, or you're just still caught up in the moment of this new debut release? I'm thinking about next albums. You are? Yes. Any Frank Sinatra? Actually, there's an idea, not for album number two, but one day do something Frank Sinatra oriented in some way, because how many female Frank Sinatra tributes are there? Not a lot. No. And I'm not going to do My Way or New York, New York. I'll do songs that I like of his. Any chance uh, sometime in the future there might be a duet with Dad? Maybe. We've talked about experimenting with Autumn Leaves a little bit because there are the French lyrics, which I know. And my dad speaks French as well as four other languages. So we've talked about duetting on that at some point. Yeah, I don't know if we would record it. We have not gotten that far, but that's something that we've experimented with and I think we'll continue to work on. Well, you've certainly strapped yourself to a rising star uh, and you're off to a great start, Anais. I will tell you that it's really impressive what you've done so far. And uh, I would assume you feel like you have a very promising future ahead in this music business. Thank you. I hope so. (laughs) So how can people learn more about you in the meantime? In the meantime, if you mean musically, I think the album has quite a statement about me musically and personally, honestly. I relate to it in a lot of ways. So I think that that is the main book to read at the moment and there are also posts on youtube and there's information about what i'm doing on my website which is anaisreno.com i do have an instagram anaisreno.jazz and i have a facebook which is just my name anaisreno i can spell that a-n-a-i-s-r-e-n-o and Other than that, I think that's everything. You can find everything on streaming services in terms of the album, and it's on Amazon. But most of my stuff is out there because, really, I think what anybody needs to know about me is in this music. Anais, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us here today on All That's Jazz, and we wish you all the best for a marvelous future ahead. 
Of course. This has been a great time. Thank you for having me on. I've been looking forward to this. Appreciate being on here. It was a great interview. You asked some really interesting questions, not just the basic ones. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with jazz vocalist Anais Reno. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you like today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.